you have the you know the the saturated fat and ketogenic people saying oh you're losing weight so it's okay not so much okay then you have the uh, vegan people saying well you may have a high cholesterol but if you're completely plant-based you don't need a statin well none of that's true either (laughs) okay hello and welcome to the plant prescription podcast this podcast is all about helping you live a longer happier and healthier life We will be featuring conversations with great minds to inspire you to reach your ultimate potential. My name is Musammil Ahmed. I'm a medical student with a master's in psychology, certification in nutrition, and a bachelor's in business. And my name is Cass Warbeck. I'm a medical student with a bachelor of science in health and fitness physiology, and I'm also a plant-fueled Muay Thai fighter. We are both plant-based lifestyle advocates who are passionate about spreading positivity, optimizing health, and promoting sustainability. Welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, we were honored to have the chance to interview the former president of American College of Cardiology, Dr. Kim Williams. Dr. Williams was born and raised in Chicago, where he graduated from the Pritzker School of Medicine and went on to become board certified in internal medicine, cardiovascular diseases, nuclear medicine, nuclear cardiology, and cardiovascular computed tomography. Dr. Williams has served as the president of the American Society of Nuclear Cardiology as well as chairman of the Board of Association of Black Cardiologists, among other positions. But as already mentioned, perhaps most outstanding as his tenure as president of the ACC. Currently, he is the head of cardiology department at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. Dr. Williams has been vegan since 2003 after his own cholesterol scare, and since then he has been a prominent figure in advocating for the role of a plant-based diet in heart disease prevention and treatment. He has published numerous peer-reviewed articles, monographs, book chapters, editorials, and review articles, and is quite well known for his famous quote, There are two kinds of cardiologists, vegans and those who haven't read the data. Just a warning, this is a very in-depth conversation with plenty of references to cardiology research. I know that I definitely had to listen a second time. We've provided links in the show notes for most of the studies that Dr. Williams mentions, if you want to read further. So get ready to listen intently to the amazing Dr. Kim Williams and share this episode with anyone who needs to hear about the impact of diet on heart disease. Hi, Dr. Williams. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. We're both super excited to have you. We've looked up to your work for some time now. Um, I would just thought it would be a great place to get started. We were wondering, you almost became a pro tennis player before you you became a physician. We were wondering if you could kind of tell us that story. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. So first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, my tennis career was a, a little unusual in that I was a chess player throughout high school and toward the end of it, um, I actually went to University of Chicago during a summer program that they had for inner city poor kids. And I learned to play tennis on a court with 60 other inner city poor kids. Um, it had just so happened that I was a good student. I always wanted to go to the University of Chicago. And I asked the tennis coach uh, if he wouldn't mind telling me why it is that my high school people said, don't apply, you won't get in. And uh, he took a little umbrage at that and went and made a phone call. Next thing you know, I had an interview. Next thing I know, I was actually a University of Chicago student where the same tennis coach told me I would never, ever make their tennis team because I just started to play. So taking the, the challenge, I actually played tennis six hours a day. I was a little bit ahead in school, so I was starting at age 16. And uh, I had no idea that I could have been playing 16 and under tournaments. I knew nothing about tennis. Anyway, that six hours a day was really what I needed to be able to go make that jump from Chicago Public Schools to the University of Chicago. I could sit and read Plato's Republic without fidgeting if I had played for six hours. So it all actually worked together. 
Okay. So anyway, um, I and, and with all that training that I did by the end of the, but uh, by, by the time the spring season started, I actually did make the team barely, um, and I ended up um, playing number six out of six singles and number three doubles. And I was, you know, not happy with that. I always wanted to move up, and so I thought that I would play tournaments the next year. Okay, great. So now I'm turned seventeen, so I'm playing seventeen and under. Great. I played about nine tournaments in Chicago. I lost every single one in the first round. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but after the, I realized that, you know, if I travel all the way out to Hinsdale, which is a sub- suburb, you know, uh, I might as well learn something. So what I did actually shaped my medical career, believe it or not. Uh, what I did is I went uh, to the draw sheet. I looked up the top two seeds and I went and watched them play their matches. And why was I losing and why were they winning? Some of it was mechanics in terms of how to hit a backhand or forehand. Some of it was the approach to point construction. Some of it was really the attitude on the court that I'm not going to miss an easy shot. The idea of adopting best practices actually was formulated in me that summer, which is through, went throughout my medical career. So anyway, lost all those matches, learned so much that I went back to University of Chicago with nobody graduated, graduating, and I beat everybody. So then we had a really strong team because everybody moved down a slot. <laughs> okay, uh, And so I had a good college career. Um, fortunately, um, I, I started learning to give tennis lessons and working for the park district. Uh, and ultimately, at the end of medical school, I played professional events. I have more than $4,000 career prize money, but uh, my teaching pro money did help me get through medical school. Um, and it really you know, sort of changed the way that I approached everything because I could have a car and I could, you know, there are things that I couldn't do uh, without tennis. And so I, but, you know, there was another lesson in there. And that was that if you work really hard at something, good things will happen. Uh, and so that's another lesson that I've carried with me all my life. That's such a great so, advice. And that's such a cool story. So in this journey, when did you decide to go plant-based? So I actually, interestingly enough, um, I had a plant-based background in that uh, my mom, when I was, uh, when we were sort of poor inner city people, but she decided that she was going to tr- quit her low-paying job and go back to school. That made us instantly poorer, but that's not the point. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it was that, that um, one, her, one of her first classes was a biology class where there was a biology teacher who had read Ansel Keys. Uh, data from the 50s. So this was the late 60s. And um, they actually, um, they actually convinced my mom that eating animal products increased your cholesterol and therefore would cause heart disease. And so this had been around for a little while, but people really didn't understand. um, uh, It wasn't widely known, uh, but she came home and announced that we were all vegetarians. I stayed with that pretty much um, other than one time in my freshman year of, of, um, of uh, college playing number six. Uh, they forgot to get me a something plant-based, uh, and I, all I had was a Big Mac mm. <laughs> choice um, or, or play the next match, uh, the next two matches, singles and doubles without eating anything. I, of course, tried to eat the Big Mac, and at four all in the – first set of the third match, I was in the corner throwing up. So I really learned that your body does not want animal products. 
And if you, you have to kind of, this is why you take a baby and you gradually introduce this stuff. Um, and that's the only way they can do it because you're, you're not naturally supposed to apparently uh, eat that stuff. And many people have had that same experience that they go back on their diet, um, you know, any, you know, just for fun or for a holiday or something like that. And what they find out is that they're really intolerant. Um, so uh, maybe that was a bad choice of animal products particularly, but um, I, I learned the lesson. And so I hadn't eaten, you know, any more red meat. Um, when I got married, I uh, had to have the negotiation of how you're going to run a household. And I did eat uh, chicken and fish, no, no skin, not fried, sort of the American Heart Association approach, because by then I was into cardiology, um, not realizing that that was not as evidence-based as one would like. Uh, we knew that red meat caused colon cancer, and, but it, it, the science was not nearly as well developed back then uh, as it was later. And so later, it would have been about 2003, when um, my second tennis career, uh, not so much as a playing pro professional, but as a coaching a national coach, because I had a kid who, um, who was really good at tennis, had a couple national titles, and I would work him out at 5 in the morning, and then whatever junior development he was in, I would coach in that one as well. Uh, when he aged out of playing junior tournaments, then that was it. I wasn't playing tennis twice a day, every day. Um, but the, and that change in my exercise level, maybe, uh, I saw a dramatic rise in my LDL cholesterol. It was uh, up to 170. And, you know, African-American male, I had no chance of avoiding cardiovascular disease if I didn't do something about that. You know, that, that story became kind of famous because I was, uh, you know, it was put on uh, MedPage Today and um, after the ACC blog when I became ACC um, on the pre vice president. Um, and after MedPage Today, it went to the New York Times. And um, so everybody got to hear about Kim Williams' cholesterol dropping from 170 to 90 uh, just by going plant-based. Um, what I never talked about back then, but I'm talking about more about it now, is um, just at being African-American, um, having a relatively healthy diet with uh, so many people with high blood pressure in my family. And it turns out that my blood pressure was up around 140 uh, when I started medical school. And so what I ended up doing, reading in my freshman physiology book about sodium consumption and blood pressure, I cut back the sodium and my blood pressure went to 128. So here I am going vegan, oh, about you know, two and a half decades later, and my blood pressure went to 104. And now I'm, and my blood pressure is still 104. And so the plant-based nutrition, sure, it lowered my risk in terms of the cholesterol, but the impact on blood pressure was actually very astounding. That's really cool. Um, before we get into all this, like more of the mechanism and the prevalence of cardiovascular disease, I want to touch on the fact that you were elected to be the president of American College of Cardiology. So if you could just talk about how did that happen and the fact that you were um, plant-based or vegan at the time, like, did that by any chance hinder um, you becoming the president? Yeah, I think, the, I think they were really completely separate events. Um, you know, we have changed our governance in, at, at the American College of Cardiology over the last five years. So uh, everyone is now looking for so-called competence-based governance and leadership. Um, but back then, when I was running and I was nominated for president, it was basically what we call a meritocracy. That I, I had served the college in so many capacities. I had chaired so many committees and 
Um, so you, you serve on the board of trustees. If you do a good job and people nominate you, you could actually be elected uh, to serve as president. Um, it did come up in my nomination letter. I remember that. They're pointing out how health conscious I was in terms of daily exercise and plant-based nutrition. But I don't think people were selecting me based on that. It was the fact that I would go in front of Congress and talk about payment reform and go and be a delegate to the American Medical Association and try to get malpractice reform, uh, trying to change the face of medicine to make it more patient-friendly and, uh, and more physician-friendly at the same time. And that kind of advocacy is, is something that we all should do, and I'm, we're counting on you, the young medical students. I know you don't have exactly the same issues um, in Canada, but you know when I was president and, and I spent time in Canada, there was a lot of issues of interoperability of electronic registries because some were, you know, were French speaking and some of them were not and um, trying to get them to work together for the good of Canada. That's a typical kind of advocacy thing where you go to the legislature and say, if you do this and this and this, it'll improve our outcomes. And um, so I, I'm, I'm very much a believer in medical activism. Well, thank you. We're trying to follow in your footsteps here. So who knows, <laughs> who knows where that will take us, but we'd love to dive in a little bit like right into heart disease. That's like why we want to talk to you today. So do you want to just talk about maybe the prevalence, prevalence of cardiovascular disease and talk about the fact that a lot of people think it's in their genes and it's genetic and they're destined to get it and maybe how this might not be the case? Well, some of that is actually true. That is, um, there are particular uh, SNPs, as you call it, uh, single nu nucleotide polymorphisms that actually do code for higher levels of cholesterol. And there's a wonderful publication that I was pleased to be a co-author on to give my little tiny input by Brian Ferentz, talk, talking about a so-called Mendelian randomized trial of different genetic patterns and how they code for a lifelong LDL cholesterol, uh, higher or lower, and how it really has a linear relationship with um, the cardiovascular events over a long period of time. Well, as it turns out, it is modifiable. It's modifiable by statins. It's modifiable to some degree by exercise, but it's really modifiable by nutrition. And there are people who argue against that, saying that um, if you're not a hyperabsorber, that plant-based nutrition won't make much of a difference. But I think people are starting to back away from that because they've seen the massive literature, uh, and Neil Barnard's group put together one of them, talking specifically about um, hypertension. Uh, and diabetes, but more for this conversation about cholesterol, uh, and that when you intervene with plant-based nutrition, you can expect a significant drop in your LDL cholesterol. And sometimes it's 30%, mine was 50%. I've seen someone have 70%, usually not. It's usually closer to the 30% that's average. Um, but you're, not only is your, uh, does your genetic profile determine your baseline cholesterol, but it also determines your, your response to nutrition or how bad things will get if you don't do proper nutrition. Um, so we've learned a lot that these two do interact. It's, it's nature and nurture. And uh, there is, you know, it's, this, it's the kind of information that would tell you that you cannot, if you, you have to look at modifiable risk factors. Because uh, answering the first part of your question, uh, it's, still, it's not the number one cause of death in Canada anymore, I don't believe, because the United States is supposed to be the only westernized country where heart disease is still number one. 
Um, everyone else, it's the low and middle income countries where it's number one, it's taken over. And so with 650,000 deaths every year, uh, that's really close to the Spanish flu epidemic of 675,000. Uh, I'm not sure COVID will, will take over um, because we're doing everything we can with the social distancing and the like. Um, but, you know, at 150,000 uh, right now, it, it, it might approach two or 300,000. I hope not. Um, but it's not going to get to the heart disease level. And so everyone's talking about COVID when they really should be focusing on heart disease as well uh, because it's transmissible, it's preventable. Um, and interestingly, if I can have a minute, <laughs> have, to mention, have to mention that the overlap between COVID death and cardiovascular death, the risk factors are pretty much the same. It's obesity, diabetes, hypertension, and sure enough, uh, two weeks ago, there was a publication on hypercholesterolemia and how the virus really loves not just the adipose tissue of obese people for replication, viral load, uh, cytokine storm by, by stimulating uh, macrophages and adipokines, but also high cholesterol. If you have high cholesterol in your serum, the virus loves you as a medium for growth. And so these are the four things, uh, obesity, hypertension, diabetes, and high cholesterol, that we have been battling against with good data for well, quite a while with nutrition. And so uh, I, I'm sure I'm gonna say this out loud, hoping that people will respond. I've known several vegans who have gotten uh, COVID. None of them have been hospitalized. Certainly none of them have been in, in ICU intubated or died. Um, and I keep asking all my friends who are vegan, do you know any vegans who have had a bad outcome with this? And so hopefully you've got a broad enough audience because I hate kind of anecdotes or small group, you know, and drawing to some conclusion about it. Um, but to the extent that all the data says that the vegans are thinner, um, that they, are, they have a better immune system, they fight viruses better, um, you know, we, we do expect that they would have a better outcome. Of course, now there's the other side of that. And that is I had a bunch of vegans telling me, I'm not worried about COVID because I'm vegan. And I said, wait a minute that's just gonna make you an asymptomatic carrier. This is a very serious disease. You have to do the social distancing and every, just because you're not gonna get sick doesn't mean you can't transmit it. And so hopefully, hopefully the fact that uh, your immune system is superior when you're doing plant-based nutrition will protect you, but then we have to protect everybody else. Right, it's a social responsibility. Absolutely. Um, so in regards to talking about prevalence, um, so in general, in, the, in North America, we have been told that um, the data shows that 50% of the people get heart disease during their lifetime. Um, and then also the fact that children at the age of eight to 10 are now starting to get plaques in their arteries. Um, I'm really curious, why is the prevalence so high? Are kids at such young age supposed to get plaques in their arteries? And people who are more plant-based are, is the prevalence very different from people who are not plant-based? It is. And so, again, it, it depends on your cholesterol level. Uh, we've heard, if you Google it, you'll see some reports of um, infants. Uh, and, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's one of the reasons I didn't go into pediatrics. The idea that an infant would have a, a, uh, an autopsy is abhorrent, but apparently they're finding that, um, the, that American children at a very, very young age actually have plaque in their arteries. And I heard, I didn't look it up, I just heard it yesterday um, on another discussion um, that um, they, they're finding them in utero based on the maternal cholesterol levels and dietary habits. 
if that's really true, you know, we have to protect uh, our young uh, with better nutrition. There is good data on the safety of vegetarian diets, which most people think, oh, no, you can't do a vegetarian diet when you're young. Uh, but apparently you can. Um, and the data says that they'll have a 16-point higher IQ. I think that's biased data because their parents are probably smarter <laughs> to put them on a plant-based diet in the first place. Um, but uh, the it really is uh, an indicator of the degree of obesity, the fact that we're seeing type 2 diabetes in 8 and 10-year-olds. That really is a reflection of uh, our society and how much um, extra food and poor quality food, the refined carbs, the high fat diet, the high sugar the drinks and the like. And as long as we're continuing to do that, we will develop plaque. And uh, I know there's a very, I know there's a big push to try to absolve saturated fat that came out last week. And uh, the response of the community to the Journal of American College of Cardiology uh, state-of-the-art review um, that seemed to have a lot of Canadian and uh, American dairy uh, uh, and Cattlemen's Association influence it became a big hot topic, and you know, so our nutrition group in American College of Cardiology sending a rebuttal to our own journal, uh, but that's the right thing to do and try to get the right science out there. But I know it's very popular uh, to think that saturated fat and butter and meat to, is good for you because it feels good and people enjoy eating that. But you know, I, we understand what would happen to people, just like you're talking about it at, at an early age and then they would develop more disease. Now, as a cardiologist, I'm supposed to just smile and say, cha-ching, <laughs> okay? But, but uh, is, is that a colloquialism that people use in Canada? I've heard it before. But You've heard it before. Yeah, yeah, we know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, but that is not my response whatsoever. I mean, we are sure we're here to treat heart disease, and yes, we get paid to do you know, bypass stenting and heart transplants and all the like, but gosh, it's really what we're not hoping to do. We really would like to see a much more prevention and a healthier population. So what about some of these uh, so-called like the blue zones, like Okinawa, Japan, and Loma Linda? Is mm -hmm. the prevalence of heart disease lower in these areas that are predominantly plant-based? So what they've really looked at is longevity. The whole idea of Dan Boitner's blue zones, as you know, was how, where can you, in the world, can you find people who consistently live to 100 um, if you look at Loma Linda's data that I know the best, um, when you, they were able to dissect the data based on standard American diet, which is a lot of the Ad Adventist people, um, then the people who were pesco-vegetarian or semi-vegetarian, um, the people who were ovo-lacto-vegetarian, there's a fair number of them because that's what they preached from the pulpit as the preferred diet for Adventists for you know, several decades. Uh, and they still may be uh, preaching that, but the Loma Linda University people would say no, based on their data, that the lowest cholesterol, the lowest rate of diabetes, lowest rate of hypertension, and the only group out of that five that's not overweight, that's a body mass index of more than 25, would be the ones who are doing uh, purely plant-based nutrition. And so we, we do have epidemiologic data that says the less animals you eat, the, the better you do. Uh, a lot of the no, um, uh, Okinawa data, for example, they were eating, you know, three ounces of, um, of uh, seafood, you know, every three or four weeks. And so it was not a, you know, purely plant-based um, diet. Don't have a randomized trial to say if you take Okinawans and you, you know, put them on American diet, you pretty much know what happens. 
but if you were to take that little bit of animal product away, what would happen? Um, but you know, the other thing about that, I know it's, it's kind of tangential, but I, I think it, it's really important to, to not say this out loud, is that part of the issue um, with our society versus Okinawa is you know, these 105 year olds have had the same friends and the same network of support for 100 years. They meet in kindergarten, they keep their friends forever. Uh, that's something that social connection is something that we probably should focus on more. And I am bringing that into the nutrition conversation uh, based on uh, Framingham data from a, maybe a decade ago saying that, uh, you know, they had actually designed the Framingham to try to maximize the follow-up. So they had asked for your name and your phone number when you sign up and your address and all and your family members and who can you, who can you contact outside your family if we can't find you? Who, who could we, you know, contact to maybe know who you were? And most people put their best friend, right? As it turns out, um, the obesity data that they analyzed, it wasn't your husband, it wasn't your brother, sister, parents. It was actually your best friend, okay? If they were obese, you were more likely to be obese. And so that speaks to sort of the other side of that Okinawa data, that our closest friends and the people that we socialize with tend to influence our own lifestyle behavior. So I'm hopefully we can learn from that and we can influence our friends uh, for healthiness. Makes a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, again, one of the other social responsibilities, um, just influence people around us to make better choices. Uh, I want to get into the pathophysiology and mechanism of heart disease now. People tend to blame, it seems to be like there's either the sugar side or the other parties like blaming fat. Can you speak to the role of both of these in heart development? And if, and in regards to sugar, I would like to also break it down further to discuss like fruit versus refined sugar. Okay, so you say you have an hour and a half, huh? Okay. All right. So let's start with sugar since you, since you started there. Um, you know, we were, I think, oblivious for a while. Uh, it's unfortunate. If you Google it, you'll see an article in 2016 um, that talks about the Sugar Research Foundation and their influence on nutrition research and publications. A very unfortunate scenario where a senior person at a major university um, who was in control of a lot of the journals and conference content and the like um, actually was being paid to shift the blame uh, from sugar for heart disease onto saturated fat and cholesterol. Worthy targets, okay? But um, I guess the, the note to self would be if I ever do anything nefarious uh, before I die, I should destroy the paperwork. Uh, so the, the graduate <laughs> student who found these boxes, you know, post-mortem, um, went on ahead and published it. And it was very, very sad because um, by the time that got published in 2016, there had been a couple of major publications that had hinted toward this. The two that come to my mind were one, the Nurses Health Study, uh, which is also from Harvard, where they actually found um, that if you, you're eating vegetable fiber, your mortality goes down. You eat a cholesterol load, your mortality goes up. If you eat a sugar load, your mortality goes up more than that cholesterol load, saying that the donut, the glazed donut is worse than the hamburger. And that I think was news to many of us and nobody knew quite what to do with it uh, because sugar is a plant and you know, if it doesn't have a face and it doesn't have a mother, it's okay, right? Not okay. And so it turns out 
that um, uh, the next one was in 2014 in JAMA. And I just remember it so well because, A, I've shown the slide at so many of my talks, but also because I was eating vegan products, uh, like vegan cookies that had gone um, vegan, you know, just by taking the lard out of it. Uh, but it was refined grains and sugar. And so it may have felt good and tasted good, but it was not healthy at all. And it showed that there was a curvilinear relationship between mortality and the more sugar you ate. So then you have to dive into what's behind it. And it really is, it's insulin. Insulin is our friend if we're uh, insulin deficient, you know, type one diabetic. Insulin is not a friend to a type two diabetic where the insulin levels are higher than, than the three of us sometimes put together. Uh, and, and it's being driven by insulin resistance. So your pancreas keeps putting out more and more and more. And it may not be lowering the blood sugar because of the insulin resistance, but it is driving all kinds of nutrients in, from the gut into the bloodstream and from the bloodstream into muscle, fat, everything. And so it's a very effective hormone in doing what it's, what it's got to do, um, but it does accelerate plaque wall thickness and blood vessels, so hypertension. And so by the time you're done with the extra dyslipidemia, elevated blood sugars, the inflammatory response that happens when you eat sugar, which was published about a month ago, you get about, in, a, in two hours, you have a dramatic rise in inflammatory markers such as interleukin-6 and, and uh, C-reactive protein if you take a big sugar load. So um, to the extent that um, insulin is driving it, plaque formation, uh, the hypertension, the dyslipidemia, all of it, then you add your inflammation, increase in inflammatory markers, and um, then you can understand why sugar is so bad. So how about fruit sugar? I have uh, so many patients who feel like once they've switched to a plant-based diet, um, that, that it's healthy to do juicing. Well, the jury is very much out on juicing as opposed to um, doing smoothies. The difference is that the smoothie still has the fiber. And so if you're concerned at all about that inflammatory response or uh, insulin response to a sugar load, you have to modulate it with fiber. And the best way to do that is eat the fruit uh, or make a smoothie out of it where you just dump it in and the fiber goes with it. And that works pretty well. Um, so when that data came out, it did modify my behavior a little bit. You know, I don't do the, obviously I don't do the cookies and that and stuff anymore, but uh, I would take the grapes and the cherries and I would put them in a, um, in a salad or something like that. Um, so that I'm getting a lot of fiber with that sugar load. Most of the fruits, the, the sugar fiber ratio is reasonable, but you know, cherries and grapes and white cheese. And you know, there are a couple where the sugar content is so much more than the fiber is probably not good. Okay, so if I can pause there for any questions, and then I'll go on to because because you asked the long question. So if that's the no, that's, that, uh, that's I, great. I actually kind of do have just one follow up question to that. So in the absence, say someone has perfect cholesterol levels and their LDL is low, all this, they're eating a low fat diet, but they're just eating refined sugar and refined carbohydrates. In the absence of these other factors, could that still potentially cause heart disease, or is it more the interplay of everything? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So this is 2017, Journal of American College of Cardiology. Uh, there was an article about healthy versus unhealthy plant-based diets. And they actually did an index of unhealthy plant-based diets. 
Uh, now, admittedly, it's more than what you just said. It was taking a potato, which is healthy, and then frying it, making it French fries, which is not healthy. But sugar-sweetened beverages, um, refined grains, particularly white flour, um, and you put that, if you put those items into your diet, and then you look at the development of coronary heart disease, it turns out that that, that increasing relationship between bad outcome and, and doses of bad food turns out it's worse than eating animals. Wow. So, so, so beware of the unhealthy plant-based diet. Okay, thank you. Great. That's really okay, good to know. So, so getting back, so, um, so there you are, you're uh, you know, chair of the nutrition, being paid by the Sugar Research Foundation to push cholesterol and saturated fat as the, as the bad guys. Well, I, I did mention that they were worthy of that, and that's because there's a unique correlation, as I mentioned, with cholesterol, um, that you know, the lifelong exposure to cholesterol correlates with cardiovascular events. And if you look at the cholesterol trialist data, it's very, uh, do you guys use millimoles or milligrams per deciliter? Millimoles. So millimoles, okay, much, much easier discussion. One millimole, which for anybody in the United States who's listening, that's about 39 uh, milligrams per deciliter. But that one millimole reduction in um, LDL cholesterol is about a 22% decrease in cardiovascular events and mortality. And that is something that people try to deny it, but it's been shown over and over again. You have the, you know, the, the saturated fat and ketogenic people saying, oh, you're, you're losing weight, so it's okay. Not so much, okay? Then you have the um, vegan people saying, well, you may have a high cholesterol, but if you're completely plant-based, you don't need a statin. Well, none of that's true either, okay? You need to do everything you can by any means necessary, okay, any greens necessary or any beans necessary to, to get your LDL cholesterol um, down to where you're not developing plaque. And if you have plaque, if you have disease, your target for an LDL would be um, about a millimole and a half. Um, so that would be, uh, you know, this is really important. Those, that was the new um, uh, European Society guideline based on data that showed that you can make plaque regress if you get the LDL cholesterol low. So I'm not saying that you know, there is no role for, um, uh, the big argument by the way is your LDL density is more important, that is the small dense LDL. But the data is really pretty clear that, um, that if you had a, um, a atherogenic rate of 1.6, let's say, for the small dense LDL particles, the fluffy LDL is still gonna be 1.4. So they cannot say, eat more meat, eat more saturated fat, um, and don't worry about the cholesterol rise because it's all fluffy. Um, that just doesn't fit uh, with the data. Um, and so you have all of the major societies really saying that you shouldn't do the ketogenic diet full of fat and full of cholesterol uh, because you will end up um, uh, making the wrong parameters go up, even though the diabetes will go down if you lose weight, no question about that, but the inflammation and the increase in the LDL cholesterol put you at, at risk. So that now it turns out that sugar, saturated fat, and cholesterol are actually only a piece of what we're looking at. Uh, if you look at the NIHAARP study, it'll tell you that heme iron is actually uh, one of the worst candidates. And I know we have a plant-based um, meat in the United States, 
where they synthesized um, GMO, synthesized um, uh, heme iron. It makes it look bloody. It makes it taste bloody. That's the impossible burger. Uh, I was going to be very careful to not name a name. <laughs> <laughs> But just as people might not know what to eat and what not to eat. Good point. You, so so out, out of your mouth, right? Um, as it turns out, um, the other, their big competitor does not have um, the heme iron in it. And so it, it's going to be important to try and um, see what happens over time. Uh, they both have some saturated fat, one more than the other. And from coconut oil, and people are questioning that as well. Um, they're not, they wouldn't be considered part of a whole food plant-based diet, but many of us as clinicians end up with patients who say, I'll never change, I'll never change. And if our goal is to keep them as live as, as long as possible, then we really try to get them to, even, to have a transition diet, even if it's full of you know, soy isoflavones and, and, and the like things that we wouldn't necessarily want to have in a whole food plant-based diet, but at least they are plant-based and they will uh, probably be better than the animal stuff, provided it's not refined carbohydrates. Right. Um, I was just going to bring up the fact that some people might not even know the natural place heme iron comes from. So that's animal products. Yep. Um, it's the and, blood. Right. Exactly. Um, so why, from a mechanistic point of view, like why is heme iron a problem? So it's actually been shown that heme iron is in an oxidized state as opposed to reduced iron, which is what you get from spinach and kale and spirulina and all that stuff. And so when you're eating plant-based iron, you're not adding to your oxidative burden. When you're eating it from heme iron, it's a powerful oxidant and you actually oxidized LDL, for example, is nine times more likely to go into a plaque than non-oxidized LDL. And so um, it has been associated with um, macrophage uptake and disruption, plaque rupture, uh, heart attack and stroke. So it's uh, in death. So it's something that we probably should take in very small quantities, if ever. Right. That's a really good point. Um, while we're talking about meat and such, mm -hmm. like everyone agrees that trans fat is bad and it's been made illegal now in a lot of the countries. But what about the fact that it's naturally occurring in meat and dairy? So the so-called ruminant uh, levels of trans fats are not as high as what we were getting uh, when we were doing hydrogenation of oils and, and you know, cooking and overcooking, you know, baking those fries. Um, so uh, they are there, but, um, you know, their, con their contribution versus the much larger amount of saturated fat, I don't think anyone's ever dissected out. I would just put it on the list as yet another reason not to, um, to eat animal products. So there are a couple more that we should mention. And, if I, and I probably really should lead with this one uh, and with all due respect to the Cleveland Clinic um, because their data is very strong. And if I could get everybody to just Google the, lerd, the, the, the word, or the, I'm sorry, the letters TMAO, trimethylamine in oxide, that really is a powerful substance that develops in your gut when you change your microbiome from that of a plant-based person to an omnivore person, that transformation uh, and then supplying uh, carnitine and choline, phosphatidylcholine, particularly out of meat, dairy, eggs, it turns out that that combination leads to a high trimethylamine level, which then, depending on your genetics, gets oxidized at a certain rate 
um, so that most meat eaters are, are running around with a high TMAO level. And it turns out that the people with the highest quintile of uh, trimethylamine and oxide have an extremely high uh, long-term incidence of heart attack, stroke, death, and then their subsequent publication said heart failure. And so these are things that we should be able to improve upon. Um, I, at Rush, we actually did do a uh, inner city church going from soul food to vegan over Lent uh, in 2019. And it turns out that the TMAO levels dropped 43%. Insulin dropped 43% too. Um, and the weight, the weight went down and, you know, small dense LDL went down. Everything looked good. But the thing that I, I was most happy about was seeing this really toxic substance um, that is correlated with more plaque rupture and then platelet aggregation um, to, to make it more thrombogenic. Uh, to, to see that go away was really wonderful. So what are the, com- like, which foods have the components that would lead to TMAO, TMAO production? Believe much animal products. And yeah. so they, they actually have had um, studies that look for specifically at chicken and fish. And my understanding is that poultry generates relatively little compared to red meat and eggs and, uh, and uh, dairy. And, but fish, even though it would generate l- less of it, a lot of the fish actually have TMAO. And that actually the fishy smell that you get is trimethylamine and oxide. And so um, something that we should watch very carefully, everyone should be very knowledgeable of it. Um, and we're getting to the point, I think, once, uh, I was trying not to name any brand names, but, but I already mentioned Cleveland Clinic. Cleveland Clinic had Cleveland Labs, and I think Quest bought them, which means that everyone should be able to order a TMAO level. I've actually started ordering them myself in addition to my research project. Uh, ordering them clinically when a patient asks for it. Uh, the reason I tend not to order it is that I'm going to say the same thing. I'm going to tell you to be plant-based no, no matter what. So there's a way in which, you know, why should I order a test that's going to go down and I know what's going to happen? I only order it if the patient asks for it. No, that's fair. All right. We just want to touch on kind of one other thing before we get into the optimal diet. A lot of people have, there's a confusion around eggs and there's a confusion, a myth that like dietary cholesterol doesn't directly affect serum and plasma cholesterol. Can you Mm -hmm. just briefly talk about this? Oh gosh. So I would like to, um, um, probably one of my best literary works if ever, if I had to grade myself would be in the IJDRP. So IJDRP.org. Um, if you look in the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention, I actually absconded with a conversation um, that, you know, nobody said it would be private necessarily. So, they, you know, nobody stopped me. <clears throat> but I first of all should thank all my colleagues for giving me such fodder to, uh, to play with. But, um, and maybe I felt a little ownership because that might be the only lasting part of, of me being president of the American College of Cardiology is that I started the nutrition work group, okay? Well, these very intelligent, very thoughtful people, we have Mediterranean couple and we have um, maybe one or two keto people, but it's basically the, the vegan group, okay? Uh, vegan cardiology group. And what, what happened is that our leader of um, the physician's committee for um, Responsible Medicine, PCRM, that's Neil Barnard, actually did an analysis that got published uh, a few months ago of the egg industry and egg science. And what he showed was that if the 
egg board or the egg industry was involved in a publication in terms of sponsorship, then there was an 86% likelihood that eggs look good. And that dropped to the low 30s if they weren't involved. Now, that, he, when he sent that to our group, we all were looking at it, and you know, um, this was on the heels of a Don Lloyd-Jones, uh, who's at Northwestern in prevention, uh, study that actually showed that eggs increase mortality. And this was uh, a really good substantial food frequency questionnaire, which I know everyone questions it unless it shows what it is that they want it to show, then they question it if it, if it doesn't. Um, showing that anything above a, an average of a half an egg per day or three eggs per week or so increases cardiovascular mortality and that there was a linear increase and that maybe not so popular with the vegans, um, that if you take the mortality model and you adjust it for cholesterol intake, the effect of eggs went away, which means to the scientists, don't eat the egg yolk. And to the chef, it means the same thing. Don't eat the egg yolk. And so um, with that being of the background, that these are mortality things, the incredible edible cause you to die thing, uh, <laughs> Um, we it, were interested in uh, Dr. Barnard's an analysis, and it's, it generated quite a bit. Our Mediterranean friends who believe in eating eggs uh, were saying that, you know, their data in Europe is really not so bad, uh, and they actually sent a number of references. Well, it's, I actually was so interested in it, I went into each one of those references, and they basically didn't say what people were saying they said. And there were flaws here and flaws there and say, oh, there's no mortality when, um, no increase in mortality when the p-value was 0.050001. Uh, okay, <laughs> for example. Well, that's, you, you needed one more person in the study and it would have reached statistical significance. So, there, so what I found is that even with the, our own groups, um, or that the small portion of the group that liked eggs, um, even with their defense of the eggs, it was that same kind of thing. There was spin uh, on it. So anyway, um, obviously, uh, I started making a lot of puns about, you know, I, we're trying to keep our sunny side up. And, and so please, if, if someone wants to enjoy that uh, egg discussion, please look it up uh, under my name and, and we'll, IJRP. We'll put it in the show notes for sure. It'll be funny. Sure. <laughs> okay, so. I, ha I have another question. Um, mm -hmm. We had mentioned poultry for a second, and you had mentioned how po uh, poultry has lower TMAO production. And chicken just in general tends to get this safe um, perception that everyone thinks chicken is healthy. Uh, if you have high cholesterol, just go eat chicken and just cut out like, you know, red meat and stuff. So could we just take a minute to talk about mm -hmm. how chicken actually is related to heart disease and is it actually safe like people think it is? So uh, what we don't, let me, let me answer it this way. What we do have uh, is everyone's experience was like mine. I was not eating fried chicken before 2003. I was eating chicken breast, no skin, not fried. The lowest amount of fat you could get um, I did have my own little problem. I had to cover it up with something because I didn't want to see nerve artery vein. Medical school ruins you, okay? Just <laughs> get that out there, okay? Um, but um, the fact is, if, if, it's, if you're not frying it, 
you might see less of a problem than you do when you deep fry it and eat the skin because it's very high fat. However, the largest data sets that we have where maybe they don't dissect, I guess that's a good word, okay, or they, they don't try to separate or bifurcate you know, sort of healthy preparation versus unhealthy preparation, they basically show that poultry and fish uh, and dairy have about a six to eight percent increase in mortality if you were to um, eat that instead of three uh, three percent substitution with vegetable protein. Now that's a complicated statement, but not three percent is actually a small amount. Suppose you do six percent or eight percent. I mean, or nine percent. Well, you know, then then you're talking about some large changes in mortality. So what people are saying is that there is indeed a substitutionary benefit. That is, whatever was gonna to happen to me would have, been happen would have happened worse if I was eating red meat um, compared to uh, chicken fish. And there, we do have good data for secondary prevention, not primary prevention, which I'll talk about in a moment, um, in that the, the uh, Mediterranean intervention after a heart attack, the Lyon trial, showed a substantial reduction by getting away from the standard diet that has red meat into the one that only has chicken and fish. That was a big improvement. Now, having said that, people are on all over the Mediterranean diet with chicken and fish, olive oil and nuts, um, talking, talking about the PREDIMED trial that was republished in 2018. And it's the, gotta be the biggest disconnect that I have ever seen as a scientist because the paper is very, very clear that there's about a 30% reduction in the combined endpoint of heart attack, stroke, and death. But then you go from graph A to graph B, where they isolate the mortality, and the mortality wasn't improved. It was not statistically different. And in fact, if you wanted to, to look at the trends, the nut group with the Mediterranean diet actually had a 12% increase in mortality. So if it doesn't save lives, why would, why would we do the chicken and fish? Well. We had, you know, they had heard enough of these vegan challenges in the PREDIMED people, and they did an analysis of uh, the five quintiles of, of vegetable use, meaning very little, some less, I'm sorry, more, 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 to almost with the last quintile being almost exclusively vegetarian or vegetarian, okay? And it turns out that that did have a mortality decrease. It was a 42% mortality decrease. And so that would be, again, you know, you can try to walk into the guideline group um, and say, we want to quote that a vegetarian diet is better than a Mediterranean diet. And they kind of laugh you out of the room. Yeah, that did happen to me. <laughs> um, because it's a secondary analysis. It wasn't set up that way. And so we do need more prospective randomized trials to try to influence guidelines uh, both the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association, which we did last year, but uh, coming up this year is the dietary guidelines for Americans. Um, it would be great to have more randomized trials in five years when they do that one again. Um, so, you know, what we have is substitutionary benefit, but still increase in mortality. And so it's not something that I would recommend. Is, wasn't there a study released by, uh, it was a because uh, I did a post on it a while back, um, as a randomized controlled trial uh, released in 2019 in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition that had found that 
red meat and white meat were equally found to raise uh, LDL cholesterol, and they didn't really see a benefit of switching from red meat to white meat. I'm not sure if you have had the chance to read that article. I didn't, and if you could send it to me, it'd be great. Um, yeah, for sure. It is, it is exactly my personal experience, right? Mm -hmm. But more, moreover, um, you know, if there are differences in TMAO, differences in the amount of heme iron, differences in the amount of saturated fat, that may explain by why Nurses Health and Health Professional Follow-Up says that, you know, if that red meat is worse than chicken and fish. So, right. so it's, fortunately, it's, unfortunately, it's not just LDL. So chicken may be better because it doesn't have a lot of the other things um, that uh, cause cardiovascular bad outcomes. Uh, I, I should finish that one sentence about the, um, uh, the health professional follow-up, nurses' health. First of all, you in order to be analyzed for mortality there, you had to have at least one unhealthy risk factor. That's all of my patients, okay? But the other side of it is that uh, not only was chicken better than red meat, but red meat was better than eggs. And then eggs was better than processed red meat, which was the worst thing, the worst animal product of all. And they, there have been an analyses where the mortality cut point, this was also published in JAMA in 2018, where they looked at patterns of this and that and what makes you die and more, more than 2,000 uh, milligrams of sodium in your diet per day in, makes you die. Um, not having enough fruits and vegetables makes you die. Uh, Sugar-sweetened beverages greater than zero makes you die, uh, and and processed meat was in that category. Greater than zero was associated with mortality. Wow. Well, we've talked so much about like all the foods that we shouldn't be eating and why and the comp components of them. So maybe you can touch on like what is the diet you recommend to patients that come to you either wanting to prevent or to reverse heart disease they already have. What do you you tell them? Well, I used to tell them. <laughs> I used to tell them that, you know, I'm the guy who's telling you what not to eat. You, if you want to know what to eat, you got to talk to somebody else. And that, that really wasn't satisfying. And so it wasn't good for me either. And so uh, I had to start getting into this. And um, fortunately, our American College of Cardiology uh, Food and or, uh, Nutrition Work Group um, and the Association of Black Cardiologists have both put out uh, handouts that I could use personally and I can use in my practice. Um, so the American College of Cardiology, uh, it's, I'm blaming it on them, but it's actually one particular member, uh, Danielle Berlardo, uh, who put this together. We call that, you know, I'm sure you know who she is. Um, she put together the, um, so I'm calling it the red light diet, but it's really, it's got the green light, yellow light, and red light. And the red light is just what you would think, meat, eggs, um, anything that's from an animal product, anything that's refined grains, you know, sugar, dairy, any of it, okay? And um, then if you have the, uh, the yellow, it was the things that people are much more controversial about. That is, do nuts actually harm your health? Um, there are good, solid vegan diets that don't have any nuts, like the Esselstyn diet, like the uh, John McDougall diet. Uh, engine two, which is another Esselstyn diet. Uh, and then you have ones that have a, a lot of nuts, such as the Joel Furman diet. Um, that's called the Nutritarian. And then uh, University of Toronto, up a little closer to you, not much. <laughs> um, uh, that um, David Jenkins, the portfolio diet. And that has a lot of almonds. And so 
um, they, they get in periodically, they get into it about, you know, nuts and oil seeds. Um, and uh, uh, no, not too many people argue against grains, but those would be the four that are in Danielle's sort of middle column because they are calorie dense, not necessarily the health benefits one way or the other. But if someone is struggling with weight, which 90% of my patients are, we tell them to back down on them a little bit. Now, even that is controversial because there is this property of nuts that Joel Furman would be quick to point out that you this property of nuts and you eat a handful of nuts and all of a sudden you get appetite suppression. And that appetite suppression really does stop you from eating further. And so um, you're, there are randomized trials that show that when you're doing that handful of nuts, uh, people will lose weight substantially. Uh, so I know that goes against the uh, McDougall principles. And, um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, the, the, the Esselstyn diet wouldn't do it that way. And, you know, when I'm talking with them all, and if they're, you know, we're going back and forth online or, you know, in journal articles, what I always try to say is that, you know, we have bigger fish to fry without the fish. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, that is getting people to go to plant-based nutrition and not worry about, you know, the, the minor details or, or arguable details. Um, but I think doing more randomized trials against each other down the road, once plant-based nutrition is solidly based uh, in, into our culture and our practice, then we can hash, hash it out um, as long as you don't fry the hash. Uh, but I think uh, what I try to tell them is that each one of the people promoting a certain diet has had an experience and those experiences are positive. So how can it be that they're up, that they're at each other's throats? Well, they're all positive because they don't have animals. Okay. And maybe that's what we need to focus on. Uh, yeah, so I'm sure I'll hear a, from both sides. <laughs> that, no, that's really good. Cause that's the bigger picture, right? Like I feel picture. like a lot of people listening to this aren't even there yet. So for them right. to start focusing on our nuts are healthy or not, that's too detailed. And, they need to put focus on the bigger picture because, and then if they get to that point, then they can decide if they want to try out without nuts or with nuts and small details like that. Cause 90, I think all these people for the 99% agree on the diet. And it's that 1% they have disagreement on. I think that's right. Whole food plant-based diet. What about, um, I, I know we briefly touched on it, but this is, this tends to be a controversial topic. Um, coconut oil and oil in general. How's how how's that how's oil related to um, heart disease? So it's actually part of that same argument. Um, you know, uh, I mentioned Danielle Bellardo. She sort of fired up this whole thing by doing a vegan uh, keto diet. Um, and interestingly enough, I mean, I, I know Danielle. She's not overweight at all. So I never did ask her why she wanted to do it. I think the motivation, if I remember her explanation, is that she wanted to recommend it to patients and she wanted to experience it first. And so as it turns out, um, there was the Seidelman article in Lancet Public Health in 2018 that showed very clearly that if you do a plant-based ketogenic low-carb diet, it decreases mortality by about 18%. If you do it with animals, it increases mortality by 18%. And so there was some basis for thinking that it would be of benefit uh, but it started a whole uh, problem for some of the people in the camps of no oils and uh, no nuts and, and the like, because that's pretty much all you would be eating. Um, now, coconut oil 
Um, so I'm saying that, so what I, before talking about coconut oil, I would just say that I'm not sure that we have enough data, uh, just like the argument between each of the, the plant-based diets to be definitive about that. Large amount of oils tend to hurt blood vessels, but small amount of oils, um, the, the data on that, it really isn't clear. Um, and so then, and then the opposite, if you don't have enough alpha-linoleic acid, you'll have no heart disease, but no brains, oh, you know, when you get to your eighth decade. Those are the kinds of things that people are saying, um, but I think we need more data to, to come down on either side of that. Now, coconut oil is interesting in that uh, we had the American Heart Association's presidential advisory come down as an expert opinion saying that people should not be doing uh, ingestion of coconut oil because of the saturated fat content. And the fact that if you take all saturated fat together and you substitute it with polyunsaturated or monounsaturated fat, you get a 27% reduction in mortality. Well, the, the problem with it is that that's a mixture of long chains and medium chains and short chain saturated fats. And the shorter chains, which happen with the vegetables, uh, vegetable fats such as, um, as coconut oil, may not have the same dyslipidemic effects and, and inflammatory effects. Um, so you have some really strong supporters of, um, uh, of coconut oil. And then um, I think there are a few more detractors because saturated fat has such a bad reputation. Another area, it's not a data-free zone, but the data is fairly thin uh, talking about the fat. Is it fair to say until we know more, it's just better to eat the coconut instead of the coconut oil? I think that's a reasonable thing to do. Um, and it's good to take the oil and put it on your hair or something. <laughs> All right. um, another oil um, that's not used in the same manner, but fish oil. What are your thoughts on that? Because that is a common question that comes up when, when a discussion on heart disease is being had. So fish oil is really a, a, an important um, thing to discuss, particularly for the people who are not plant-based. And those who are doing unhealthy plant-based, you can see a drop in the LDL cholesterol, a drop in HDL, and a rise in triglycerides. The, the, it turns out that um, fish oil does have a good role for decreasing triglyceride levels, okay? Um, when you look, however, at the usual types of fish oils, the ones that you would get over the counter, and some of the brand name products, the brand name is out there and very expensive. Um, you know, the one that's been around for a long time, um, and I'm still trying not to use brand names, but um, they say that they do a purification to get rid of the um, mercury, the saturated fat, the cholesterol, and the PCBs, polychlorobiphenols, so that it's less likely to cause cancer and therefore their product is safer. Well, that may be true. It may be better, uh, even though it's way more expensive than the over-the-counter stuff. So that's one thing to try to differentiate. But the other side of it is that it's a combination of DHA and EPA. And the, it turns out that EPA, um, when you isolate that and you use it uh, for people who are at high risk or have had a recent cardiac event with high triglycerides and high being defined as more than 135, which I can't quite translate that one into millimoles for you, but uh, 135 milligrams per deciliter. As it turns out, um, that did show an improvement in outcomes. That 
multiple trials were done, and some of them were positive, some of them were negative, some of them were neutral. When you have the DHA, that is probably harmful. And so I think the, you know, the, the newer, even more expensive fish oil um, that uses EPA only probably does have a role for people who genetically have a high triglyceride uh, or those who can't change their lifestyle and get their triglycerides down. Would it be valuable instead to supplement with like an algae-based omega-3 oil instead of fish oil? So the, I'm really talking about the management of cardiovascular disease. I've never seen any of the algae-based uh, data. Um, and, and really specifically targeting the elevated cholesterol fragment, the VLDL or triglycerides. Uh, I would love, but people talk about, uh, you know, the alpha-linoleic acid, for example, uh, that people are getting, I, I would like to see more data uh, on whether that really does affect cerebral function long-term and avoid dementia and the like. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, this is something where that, that's pretty close to a data-free zone. You have a lot of speculation and logic. You know, I'm not a fan of logic, uh, I have to admit, because uh, we've, burned, we've been burned in cardiology too many times, you know. You know, I hopefully, for my best example for that, if I could take a minute of your time, is like Mona. Did you teach you that in medical school for treatment of a heart attack? Mona? No. 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 It was morphine, <laughs> oxygen, nitrates, and aspirin. Okay. Turns out the aspirin dose was way too high. You know, that first dose of 325 is fine, but after that, you better drop it down because you're going to get so much GI toxicity. Nitroglycerin has <laughs> never, ever shown a benefit other than symptomatic benefit um, in selected conditions. And most of the time when it takes away chest pain, it's actually not heart disease. And people are still confused about that, even though randomized trials were done to show that it relieves non-cardiac pain. And occasionally you get that so-called basal gerish reflex, where you're, you take the nitroglycerin on the tongue and the heart rate drops and the blood pressure drops and the patient gets in deep trouble. Oxygen has been now shown in multiple studies to be damaging. And I'll still walk into an emergency room and see people get slapped on oxygen when they have on chest pain. Um, so if your oxygen saturation is more than 94, 96%, you're just creating more oxygen radicals and your heart attack size is gonna be bigger. And morphine actually kills people um, with, with the uh, ST elevation myocardial infarction. And you know the mechanism isn't all that clear. It probably is decreasing the sensorium so people are not you know, being as aggressive as they could to try to save their life. Um, so anyway, that's a really great example for a cardiologist that, you know, everything we thought was good, uh, a lot of it turned out to not be good. Um, our, our nutrition advice, a lot of the medications, everything gets turned over over time. So the only solution to it is to keep studying, uh, keep learning, and be not just a lifelong learner, but a lifelong researcher. Uh, we, owe it to our, we owe it to the field. Well, I love how everything you say is so research-based. You've quoted so many studies in this interview. It's been phenomenal. Um, I was wondering, is there any research on low-fat dairy in particular to heart disease? Because some people think that as long as they're choosing the low-fat versions, like you're eating a low-fat diet, it's okay. We're just wondering about that. So what, I've, what I have heard um, is really not so much uh, cardiovascular. And in fact, uh, when Dean Ornish came out with his plant-based nutrition and his research, it actually contained some low-fat dairy way back in the day. He moved away from that. And um, the, the concern that I would have about low-fat dairy probably mirrors, um, there are some 
folks who are really trying to get dairies and to give up what they're doing to the cows and the like. And the science they quote, um, it's a, a lot of damaging stuff on the GI tract, the pancreas, uh, development of diabetes. Um, cardi for the cardiovascular system, it actually may not be so bad if it doesn't have the saturated fat. Now, having said that, I can quote you a couple things um, that go in opposite directions. One is um, the article that I was quoting before about you know, processed meat worse than eggs, which is worse than red meat, which is worse than dairy, fish, and chicken. Uh, that Nurses Health uh, uni uh, Harvard study actually had a sort of, a I don't even wanna call it a companion article, but an article published with the exact same title, substitution of, um, of uh, looking at cardiovascular mortality with substitution of um, animal protein from vegetable protein. Same journal, Journal American Medical Association, three years apart. And the Japanese uh, were the source of the second set of data. That Japanese collaborative study showed a very unusual thing. When you added up all their data, there was actually a 7% decrease in mortality, which was inexplicable um, with dairy. It increased cardiovascular mortality, but it not, didn't reach statistical significance, uh, but increased overall um, survival. Is that because people who drank low-fat milk in Japan wear seatbelts? I, I don't know. Um, but there was, uh, uh, so there's that. And then there's a the whole science behind casein. Whey, um, the biggest problem with whey is probably that when you go into the GNC store and you're trying to bulk up and you're using dairy to do it in the whey powder, is that it's got cholesterol. And it's going to add to your cholesterol. It's probably not a good idea to do. Uh, not when there's vegan pea protein that you could use to bulk up. But the casein, which is the other major protein of dairy, uh, apparently an um, American cows have this divergence of genetics um, where 50, about 50% 50 of, the, of the dairy cows have an atherogenic casein and 50% do not. So it's really not surprising that you're going to get mixed results depending on what kind of cows you have. And, you know, do you walk up to the cow and say, now is your casein atherogenic <laughs> or do you just skip it? I, I just skip it. Is this one and they call it like A2 milk versus, I can't remember the other one, but is that the, the term for it? I'd have to, I'd have to okay, yeah, no worries. <laughs> very file to, uh, <laughs> to, to, to answer that one. Okay. Um, so we have already gone over a lot of studies, but I think it would be really beneficial to a lot of the listeners for you to just mention the studies that have actually shown arteries opening up when people were switched to a vegan plant-based diet. Because um, so if you could just talk about that, that would be really beneficial. So plaque reversal, um, I, I wanna, I'd like to do it sort of in order of, of appearance, okay? Because it's important to get the history. The first one that I saw was actually Greg Brown back in the early 1980s. Um, you know, I know Dean Ornish started his work in the late 70s, but it took him a while to um, do reversal studies and get them published. <clears throat> but this was back when statins had just come out and uh, we only had one and we had these other, you know, um, other drugs to lower cholesterol. And even with those rudimentary drugs, it was clear that if you got the cholesterol low, you could get your angiographic narrowing to improve. And if the cholesterol was high, the angiographic narrowing increased or worsened. 
so then uh, you have Dean Ornish, and he did this several ways. Uh, it's not just about the uh, percent diameter narrowing of a coronary artery. He, which took with his one-year and his five-year studies, showed that there was substantial reduction. There was also nuclear, my favorite um, technique that I grew up running a nuclear lab, um, where you can measure the blood flow to the heart muscle, um, but at rest and then with provocation like stress or adenosin, or now we use regadenosin in most countries. As it turns out, um, you were able to see improvements in flow on PET scanning, rubidium-82 PET scanning, within three months. And that's way too fast for the plaque to have gone away, but it, it just reminds us that when we're looking at blood flow uh, on, in the muscle, that perfusion is actually a combination of epicardial narrowing and the function of the small vessels themselves. And so endothelial function improves dramatically when you go on a plant-based diet and give it a lot of nitric oxide. And so Dean actually did show that. Then he did have the five-year follow-up data that very similarly showed a substantial improvement in, um, uh, you know, even, it was a small number of people who would come back in five years and willingly have an angiogram. But he showed, um, you know, with you know, six, seven people in each group that if you followed his diet really well, you had plaque regression. You had less of a plaque regression if, you, if they followed it you know, partially, and if they were non-adherent to the diet, they didn't get plaque regression. So then the next one was actually the Cleveland Clinic group, not looking at nutrition, but looking at statins. And everyone was just shocked to find out that high-dose statins, uh, that's a torvastatin and rosuvastatin, two out of the seven statins that we have on the market in the United States, um, only at the highest dose, to get the LDL really, really low, could you get plaque regression? And they would see about a 40% re regression of plaque over a two-year period. Um, the le less than uh, high dose, you would actually get some plaque stabilization. That is the amount of lipid-laden plaque on intravascular ultrasound was less, but you didn't get the plaque regression. Um, it's okay. So then you have um, some anecdotes uh, done by Caldwell Esselstyn, where he's been doing the Esselstyn diet, he's getting people to have better outcomes, uh, but very few of them are in an organized fashion having um, angiograms done. But a handful of them did, and he has probably the most impressive ever, if you Google it, Esselstyn regression, you'll see um, the, the young doctor who took Dr. Esselstyn's place as the chief breast surgeon, um, and his angiogram that looked really ugly, so ugly that they didn't want to bypass it or put too many stents in it. Uh, and then three years later, uh, it was a perfectly normal left anterior descending uh, on Esselstyn's diet. Uh, that probably is the most famous case, but again, it's an N of one. You say, how can it happen? Well, he was 41 or 42 years old, and maybe he had soft plaque instead of hard plaque. Yeah, you can make a lot of, but there's no question that dropping his cholesterol really did make a big difference. The most recent one is actually, um, you're probably familiar with the PCSK9 inhibitors. We use them in patient, patients who are statin uh, intolerant. And they did the GLAGOF trial. The GLAGOF trial, if you look at it, is so impressive. It was not a vegan study at all. It's not a nutrition intervention, but it really does, it really does make a big difference um, in that um, 
it showed that there's this linear relationship between the LDL cholesterol and plaque regression on a population basis. How many people are getting um, the plaque to regress and how much? And it turns out that um, if you get your LDL to about 89, um, that would be uh, about three or so uh, millimoles, you can actually sort of be even between progression and regression. If you got it below 58, which again would be about 1.5, 1.6 millimoles, that actually 100% of people are plaque regressing. And so I know that was a PCSK9, not a statin study. It was not an outcome study, um, but, and it's not a plant-based study, but it proves the hypothesis that you could do things that lower serum cholesterol and the arteries are going to open up if you get it low enough. That's Thank you for stating that so clearly. And thank you for like going through the evidence. So step-by-step wise, it really like leaves no doubt, like diet and lifestyle and, and statins, they all have a role in disease like reversal. So we're taught in medical school that like diet and lifestyle are not enough to lower cholesterol completely. We're taught that basically if your patient's LDL, if their total cholesterol is above a certain point, you always need to prescribe a statin. Um, so will some people always need a statin? Or if you're super adherent to your whole food plant-based diet, like do you not need a statin at all? Like what's your approach to prescribing statins to your patients? The key word in what you said, which was very insightful, was patient. If the patient, if a person is not a patient, and I, I, I and I know I've gotten, uh, I was getting pushback uh, for a long time for saying that people need statins. I was on a big panel with one of the biggest gurus of plant-based nutrition, who'd wrote, written one of the most famous books. So of course, I'm not going to say his name out loud. Um, you know, said in front of the 5,000 people who were listening and the 500 in the audience, uh, is there any data that statins save any lives? And I said, I didn't, I, you know, it was, it was such a startling thing, me as a cardiologist reading all the guidelines. So I said, okay, I'm going to just pull out my phone here and I'm going to Google two words, statin mortality, and then hit images. And the first thing that comes up, of course, is familial hyperlipidemia. <laughs> and you could see this 64, 65% decrease in mortality over a 10-year period. And, and his jaw dropped because he had just never seen that data. But maybe that was a little extreme. But there's loads of data on that page um, that if you have an indication for a statin, that is you have disease and an elevated cholesterol, and you take a low dose instead of uh, a moderate dose, or a moderate dose instead of a high dose, or don't take it at all, you see a differentiation in your mortality. More is better, now, no question about it. Now, does that mean that everybody needs a statin? or that everybody can tolerate a statin. I know everybody's experience is different. Um, the high dose statins that I was bragging about plaque regression, definitely associated with uh, the development of diabetes. Uh, so who would want that? Well, the best, who, who develops diabetes? Let's be very clear. It's the people who have metabolic syndrome to begin with. So if you do plant-based nutrition, which I would push in everyone who's gonna do a high dose statin, now put them on plant-based nutrition, get the central obesity to go down, uh, and then they don't develop clinical diabetes, okay? Well, the, the real issue here is that, and I kind of joke with my patients, and no, you don't need a statin. If we go back in a time machine 20 years and start your plant-based nutrition back then, 
and you don't develop the diseases that you have now, uh, you won't need it. But there, the data for statins is really overwhelming. So then, so I'm fighting that sort of again. I, why, am I, why I mentioned that I don't get pushed back anymore? It's because unfortunately, um, we had some very prominent members of the plant-based community who had progression of disease on very, very stringent vegan diets, uh, the most stringent you've ever heard of, and uh, still ended up with bypass surgery, unstable angina, and the like, progression of their disease, because their LDL was 90, just like the Glagoff trial said. You need to get that LDL much lower. So if you don't have disease, you may not develop disease on plant-based nutrition. But if you have disease, you need all hands on deck. Okay, so I'm fighting that fight on, you know, against the plant-based world. They, some people need medications. And then on, on the other side, we have doctors and cardiology following guidelines, ignoring the first line of all of our recent ACCHA guidelines, which is lifestyle, uh, and not really, and, and I have actually had patients come to me and say, I left that doctor because after he put the stent in, he said, you know, come back, we'll do another stress test. Um, and, and they say, well, what about diet? And he says, it won't make any difference. Well, that goes against our guidelines because we have good data that an improving lifestyle, of course, smoking, but exercise and diet are the cornerstones of prevention, whether it's primary or secondary. And so I'm really fighting that battle all the time as well, trying to get the, the, the sort of general cardiologist to recognize the importance of nutrition. Uh, and why is that so difficult for me? Um, just because I'm getting up in age and my friends are, are also, you know, in their mid-60s. And uh, a bunch of them in the last few years have had heart attacks or died. And, I'm, and I actually, in one of my talks, I it was so hit by it that I put together you know, six slides of my friends who had knew about my diet and, uh, and who I discussed the diet with. Uh, and, you know, and they kind of were laughing at me and then they died. Um, you know, one of them uh, who died very famously and it was written all in the paper because he was American Heart Association president, uh, his death was aborted by CPR. He died twice uh, and he's still doing fine now. And, you know, I, I really want to, you know, reach out and say, hey, did make a difference in the diet? Because uh, he had told me that he was on a statin. But, um, you know, another president of a, of a society uh, that I worked with, he unfortunately died on his lawnmower. There was nobody there for the CPR. Um, so the leading cause of death of heart doctors in the United States is heart disease. And so uh, we've got to get our community to know more about nutrition and uh, so fortunately, programs like yours, I appreciate you're doing this because uh, let's get the word out to both sides that, you know, that diet and medication are what you need for sick people. And, on, and when you're treating a sick person, let's start with the diet and then add the medications as indicated. That, I, I love how you are, you know, you're doing it perfectly because you're balancing it with evidence. You're, and then you have to fight both sides. You have to fight the people who are 100% diet and then you have to fight the people who completely ignore diet. And the reality is a lot of the times you might need to balance the two. Um, mm-hmm. So um, I have a question. Um, what about people when they experience a drop in HDL when they go plant-based? Because we're taught that high HDL is good, but it's very common for, um, for myself and a lot of people who go plant-based, like their total cholesterol drops and their HDL drops. Interesting. So you have, you're absolutely right. Um, let me just start, I mentioned it earlier, but 
when a person goes plant-based, you typically see a drop in the HDL, a drop in the LDL, and a rise in the triglycerides if they're not being careful with the lifestyle and what they're eating plant-based, okay? Now, the HDL, um, the history of it is very variable. We know for sure that, you know, reverse cholesterol transport is a real phenomenon, and having good HDL levels is supposed to remove plaque, and it all makes perfect sense until you try something like niacin, HPS2 Thrive, and um, uh, the all, oh goodness, oh, it'll, it'll, the name of the second one will come back in a second. They where both trials actually showed an improvement in lipid panels, but no improvement in mortality and the, H, and the uh, HPS2 Thrive data actually showed an increase in mortality. Now it was infection and it was um, uh, mostly, and some GI bleeding, but we didn't do the patients any good uh, by, by doing that, all right? The next one that I would mention is um, the uh, cetropibs, torcetropib, anacetropib, dalcetropib. These were supposed to be blockbuster drugs that dramatically raised HDL. Well, one of them fell out because it raised hypertension and then raised blood pressure and increased mortality. Um, but uh, the fact of the matter is pretty much everything that we've done to try to increase HDL levels has either not worked um, to improve outcomes uh, or frankly actually increased the bad outcomes. Um, one example or one exception would be phenofibrate, a huge study where they gave that to um, to diabetics. And the field trial actually showed a decrease in cardiovascular death. Unfortunately, the overall death was higher. Well, I'm sorry, your cholesterol is better and you didn't have a heart attack, but you're dead anyway. That's really not what we're looking for. Um, so then comes Canada and Copenhagen, 2018. If you, if you Google it, and, I, and anyone who asks about HDL, I want them to Google this high HDL mortality data that's relatively new, telling us that we had it wrong for 60 years, okay? And that um, what we really need to know is that when you have a very high HDL, it actually increases mortality, more so than in men than women, but the curve for mortality for men is basically a U with the nadir around 50 to 60. And once you start getting 80, 90, 100, the mortality goes up. Who knew that until you guys published it in Canada and then Copenhagen did the same thing. So the HDL story is, is more than complicated. I do not worry about it anymore because you can't fix it and you don't try because you'll do something that'll increase the mortality. Um, and you know, when I'm using it to my patient's benefit, I'm saying, hey, you must be exercising more. Um, because that uh, HDL went from 40 to 50. Now, if it went from 50 to 100, I'd be really nervous. But having it go up modest amounts with exercise, I think, is actually a good thing. That's completely fair. Um, I have a follow-up question just to clarify for myself, because how I understand it is, so when your total cholesterol is high, most of the times your LDL is high, and then also your HDL is high. If your LDL drops significantly, like your HDL will drop to a certain degree as well, right? Um, is that well, so uh, not with every, so, I mean, if you do it with uh, statins, the HDL does not drop. And so Sorry, with diet. I was with diet, yeah. You typically lower all 
cholesterol fractions if you do a really good one. If you do a bad one, you drop the LDL and the HDL and you don't drop the triglycerides. Okay. Um, another question is some, um, some think that high LDL is fine as long as HDL is also high. And that's like the opposite side of the story. Um, as long as triglycerides are low. So I don't know if you've heard that, but that's a question I've, I've gotten. So I wanted to see what, what your thoughts are. So triglycerides uh, really, you know, you try to look at it as an independent variable, but what it's really doing is it's affecting the LDL density. So if your triglycerides are high, you're actually, and you know, this is always confounded by the fact that people with high triglycerides tend to have poor glucose metabolism and the triglyceride and the sugar and the hemoglobin A1C are putting sort of a double pressure on the generation of atherosclerosis. But um, when your triglycerides are high, you have more small dense LDL particles. So it just makes it a bit more atherogenic. Um, so it's not a good thing to have it go up. And we get very nervous about that and try to get people to do a much better uh, degree uh, uh, of plant-based nutrition and exercise to get that down. Perfect. Well, you've been so much, so generous with your time and you've asked, answered all our questions so thoroughly. We just kind of have like one final one here just to kind of take another broad view of everything. Mm -hmm. In your opinion, what is one systemic change that would make a difference in cardiovascular disease, mortality and morbidity, like overall? Oh, gosh. So this is an, a, a very sensitive question <clears throat> for today. I mean, I, I think the rule number one is that if you're giving a healthcare lecture during a pandemic, you got to talk about the pandemic. And I know I mentioned it before, um, but what I didn't specify is the problem we're having in inner cities uh, all over Detroit, um, Atlanta, Chicago, uh, and even New York to some degree, um, where the African-American population is dying so much more from COVID. Our data, you know, I won't go into much detail because we sent in a abstracts of the American Heart Association from Rush University. Rush University um, was, the hospital was actually built in 20, finished in 2012, based on some Department of Defense money saying that we needed a place in Chicago to take care of people if there was a disaster. So Rush is actually, was capable of upsurging to 175 intensive care unit beds. I'm talking about a, a endoscopy suite, a recovery room, within two hours, it's turned into an intensive care unit. And so then, we, of course, we had to staff all that, which we did uh, with a lot of uh, pulmonary and cardiology specialists. But the point was that we saw the, the at, when we were fully surged, we had about one-fourth to one-fifth of all of the COVID patients um, uh, that were in, in intensive cares in the state were at Rush. So we collected a lot of data. And yes, we did see um, higher rates of positivity in our uh, tested black population, higher rates of hospitalization, higher rates of intensive care unit admission, higher rates of intubation, and higher rates of death. Now, our death rate at Rush was not anything where those numbers you saw at Elmhurst or uh, in New York and some of the hospital systems where the, you're intubated, it's an 80% likelihood that you're going to die. Ours were extremely low. So was Northwestern. Uh, and um, I know... You know, I, I've seen data from around the Chicago land early. It may be that we surged later and we learned a lot, particularly about um, anticoagulation. But back to the racial back, back, uh, background, when we analyzed our data 
for risk factors. That is, you adjust, uh, not just for age, but for the presence of what we know from COVID, that it, it takes, as I mentioned before, obesity, uh, takes out the obese, the diabetics, hypertensive, and high cholesterol. When you adjust the model for those things, it turns out that black people did not die more. The hazard ratio was 0.79. That would say, oh yeah, there's a 21% protection of black by being black. Now that might be statistical variability, but the fact of the matter was, it wasn't race, it was risk. Now you take that and you put that right on the other pandemic that we're living in, which is heart disease, and with the exact same four risk factors. And if we could just take stock and say, maybe COVID will wake us up and we put nutrition at the front burner, not on the back end, okay? We could prevent a lot of heart disease and a lot of uh, COVID mortality. People can get sick, but maybe they won't get intubated and die. And so that would be my message for health for the during a pandemic is let's fix the diet uh, because, you know, we need to eat today as if we want to live tomorrow. Beautifully put. <laughs> That's great. Um, so before we wrap up, we always ask three questions to all of our guests. Um, so we're just going to ask you those quickly. The first question is, what is your favorite plant-based meal? Oh, gosh. Um, oh, you got me there. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I would probably, I, I, you know, that's really hard. If I had to pick one thing that I would eat, um, well, first of all, I'm a big fan of eating a wide variety of things, and that's why I'm struggling with this. Uh, I can tell you a quick story um, that people say that no vegans ever get protein deficient, and then I raise my hand and I say, yeah, I know one. It was my mom, a raw vegan who only ate almonds, avocados, carrot juice, uh, apples, um, and um, did that for several months, and she got protein deficient. And so there's a very nice article. Um, uh, lead author is Hannah uh, uh, Patel in the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention about my mom and where we actually went through. Um, the USDA has a website where you can put in the foods that a person is eating and find out what the amino acid breakdown is and just the whole entire nutritional breakdown. And so she was missing uh, cysteine and methionine. And so I call the, the article Methionine Madness. Uh, because she basically lost her ability to have new memories because there's a specific protein. Uh, you know, yeah, she got sick because of the protein C and protein S um, leaving, which meant that she got pulmonary emboli. And her legs swelled because she didn't have albumin. But her memory was because of this one protein called RBAP48, that if you don't have it in your hippocampus, you can't create new memories. And so, you know, she's a healthcare worker, a chiropractor, understand pathophysiology, and she's asking me like 17 times, why am I in the rush ICU? Um, and so you really can. Um, so I, I became a fan instantly of a wide variety of plant-based food. So I would say there are, I have some things that I, you know, maybe don't like as much as others, but I'm voraciously eating every type of plant-based thing that I can get my hands on to make sure nothing like that ever happens to me. <laughs> all right diversity, diversity. <laughs> all right the Indeed. second question here what is one kitchen item you wouldn't be able to live without Ooh, gosh uh this is uh these are these are so unfair remember i'm the guy who tells you what not to eat <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um 
I'll be honest. Uh, I, I think one of the things that I do more consistently than anything else um, is after I come out off the court from two hours of tennis, uh, I will make a, a smoothie and I'm actually using um, uh, a, a protein powder that has cocoa in it. I put cinnamon in it uh, and then I take frozen fruit. And the interesting thing is that every single one of them is different because I use different fruit every time. So yesterday was mango and blueberry uh, with a banana. Um, and, you know, that probably is the highlight of the culinary day for me. I'm a simple guy. You know, it takes about two minutes to make. And, uh, and I think it, it makes me feel like I'm going to put on muscle. <laughs> That's the hardest part. That's the un unkept secret is that vegans can get really skinny. None of the non-plant people non-plant-based people want to hear that because they're all overweight and they're struggling with weight. I'm struggling with weight, but it's the opposite of struggle. That is, I, I want to put on more pounds and more muscle because I want to hit the ball as hard as I did 40 years ago. And, uh, and don't tell me it's not going to happen. I'm going to keep at it. <laughs> well, like say, you're so active now still, like two hours of tennis a day, like you need to eat quite a bit more than right. average people, I guess. Yeah, well, I'm still seeing a cardiology, so it comes out of my sleep. Don't tell anybody. Oops, I just did. <laughs> <laughs> sleep is pretty important. It is for sure. Um, what is one final piece of advice or takeaway you would like to leave for our listeners? So I'm hoping that you have a medical audience. Um, and I would hope that anyone who's listening to you values the importance of prevention. And what we need for the next generation, uh, which I'm hoping that you will influence, is a bunch of people who do what I've been saying for decades, which is go into some aspect of medicine that you really enjoy what is calling out to you? You know, uh, I sort of, sort of went to medical school wanting to be a pediatrician to fix the problems on the south side of Chicago that I had when I was a kid getting sick and having what I thought was poor health care. Well, it turns out that I did physical diagnosis and I could hear the murmur and well, I could look at the EKG and it made perfect sense. It's like I did this before when I hadn't. Well, it, it became that whatever is the easiest thing for you to learn, the thing you're most facile, that's really what you should go into. But, and I've been saying that for two decades to people, or three or four, but I would say on top of that is always having a prevention background. And it doesn't matter whether it's urology. You know, you're treating all these people with um, uh, difficult bladder issues. Well, it's because their central obesity is not leaving room for their bladder. Um, you, you look at the prostate, and that prostate growth, it just loves animal products, animal protein. There, that, that is the ability of lifestyle medicine to pervade all specialties is really underappreciated. And I'm hoping that everyone will find what they love to do so they're not working a day in, because they're doing what they love. Uh, but on top of that, have the prevention type of approach that'll make people feel better. That is, you know, if you're, you know, really the, the best doctors are the ones who are preventing the disease, not just treating it. Uh, after the fact. Thank you so much, Dr. Williams. That's such good advice. So if any of our listeners would like to connect with you, where can they find you? Uh, they just Google me and, you know, I, you know you'll get four, 400 million hits and mostly these podcasts and things like that. Uh, a couple of them are uh, actress and a couple of them are my neurosurgery son, but you'll find me at Rush University. Perfect. Awesome. We'll also put your information in the show notes if people are starting okay. to find you. But thank you so much for being on our podcast and thank you so much for the time you've taken to answer all of our questions. My pleasure. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to the Plant Prescription Podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it and hopefully this inspires you to take steps towards making changes so you live a longer, happier, and healthier life. 
You can also follow us on Instagram where we share nutrition, health and fitness content along with recipes. Our Instagram handles can be found in the description of this episode. Please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss on any upcoming episodes. If you enjoyed this, we would love it if you left us a positive review and a 5 star rating on Apple Podcasts. Please also make sure to share this with any family or friends who may benefit. Thank you so much for listening. Also, be sure to eat plenty of plants and see you next week.